Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. It's not your fault. No, it doesn't have to be. No, no. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Justin, how goes it, sir? It's been such a crazy week. Feels like earlier this week, it's been a year ago. I mean, there were like riots and stock market crashes and stock market soaring and so much stuff going on. It's like the whole world's going crazy, even though supposedly economic growth is slowing down. It seems like everything in the world is just speeding up and going faster and faster. The irony of collapse is that when everything starts slowing down is just when it starts picking up. That's right. So how is everything in your life, Seth? Things in my life are pretty great, kind of like the person that we're talking to today. And you know who that is, Justin? Yes, it's Matt Stein of Stein Design and also the author of When Technology Fails, as well as an upcoming book, When Disaster Strikes. And we spoke with him about a wide range of topics, which include the fragility of our technological infrastructure, how easily that could just go down from natural or even malicious causes, as well as the importance of convincing people on a massive scale and some of the tools that you could use in a disaster scenario if you were hit by an earthquake or tornado or something, some of the tools that you could use to help save your life. So even though there were a lot of very heavy things that we spoke about with Matt, a lot of things that carry a lot of gravity. Really important podcast episode today because literally some of the things we talked about could save your life. So I don't know if anything, any other episode we've had has had this much gravity. A lot of gravitas attached to this episode for sure. Yes. More gravity um, than the sun. A lot more gravity than even the sun could could produce. It's a pretty exciting time when we can talk about these amazing topics with some really intelligent guests. And Matt Stein is a very intelligent person. But yeah, the, the world is definitely reacting to the themes that we've been talking to a lot of our guests about. How do you think our guests feel that all these things are kind of happening around us as they predicted for so long? I mean, these are themes and thoughts that these men have had for lots of years, and now they're finally starting to see what's been happening. Do you think that these guys feel vindicated in their books that they've been writing all these years that they've spent squirreled away in front of their computers, typing and typing and typing, and finally now they, they see all these bad, horrible things happening in the world, and they're like, ha, I told you it was going to happen. 
Yeah, it's hard because we record interviews with people and there's so much happening in the world. And by the time that we edit it up and put it out, it's like things have changed again. So how do we even have conversations with people about what's currently happening in the world when things are changing so rapidly and so quickly? Be interviewing authors, we should just be interviewing people that are out in life, like London people and current events and be like, so tell me how you felt when you when you broke that window open today. Yeah, I or think so. How you felt when you flipped that police car open and threw rocks at, at a law enforcement? Yeah, I think that's an unbelievably valuable target because all of these people are living out the individual lives of the topics we've been speaking about our guests with. You know, we've spoken with a lot of people about economic and energy issues that are leading to this disintegration of society. And every single person has to live it out on an individual scale. Those are the real stories that need to be told. If you know someone who's been affected by one of these crazy uh, events or stories that are playing out the overall decline of civilization, then, you know, get us in touch with them. Let us know. We want to hear individual stories. Yeah, so I'm sure that one of our listeners has been affected by the London riots or the stock market ups and downs and the stock market has been some, has done some crazy stuff. So if you, maybe you're a stockbroker and you're like, oh, the stocks all fell down and I'm I'm just gonna buy a lot and now I'm gonna make a ton of money when it comes back up the next day and then I sell them all again, and make another money the next day. I mean, in the past two days, what we've had so much fluctuation in the stock market. I bet there's been close to like what two thousand points of fluctuation in the past two days. Yeah, the most volatile week in history. So that's really crazy. In history, wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then London, man, these people are rioting in the street. In China, I saw other people are rioting. Yeah, we thousands got- of people in southeastern China were rioting just the last few days. So this is this is really happening. This is stuff that's on the ground, not just theory and speculation anymore. It's it's actual, you know, on the ground stuff. And we've we've heard in a lot of those news clips that we've put together in the, in the past episodes of, you know, this stuff is actually going down. It's not just in our heads anymore. It's not theory, it's not speculation, and that's why it's so important to talk to people like Matt Stein, who put together this massive encyclopedic book, When Technology Fails, and like he says in the interview, if you found yourself in a situation where all of the support systems that you're familiar with to create modern society were to suddenly go away with some time and with some thought, you could really go through that book and make everything you need from clothes to cooking, like building a still and fermenting your own whiskey and all sorts of things. It's a huge range of knowledge that's in the book. It's always good to have extra knowledge and knowledge that doesn't depend on cheap energy inputs or oil which is the same thing exactly so i guess that's a good point to jump into our discussion with matt stein it is a good point so let's take it away matt After graduating from MIT with a degree in mechanical engineering, you went on to design numerous products, including solar photovoltaic roofing panels, bacteriological filters, computer disk drives, and automated machinery. You're the owner of Stein Design and Construction, where you build energy-efficient and low-impact homes. And as author of the book, When Technology Fails, you've created an extensive manual on the skills needed for sustainable living. And you also have written the upcoming When Disaster Strikes, which is due out later this year. 
You might add that all my life, not only have I been an engineer and designer type of person, I've been a carpenter and builder, hands-on guy, and also an outdoorsman. Grew up in the backcountry in Vermont, hiking with my parents all over New England. And then the, as I got older, I graduated to the Rockies in, in the High Sierra Mountains in the West Coast of the United States. Does modern technology add to the resilience of our civilization, or does it make us more susceptible to collapse? I'd say it definitely makes us more susceptible to collapse, and it does that on multiple fronts. We live in this world where there's this seeming superabundance. You can go to Safeway and you can pick 10 varieties of any particular item of food that you want, and you seem to have an unlimited supply of whatever you want in Costco and in the warehouses. But the giant machine is incredibly sensitive to disruptions and collapse that right now it's like we're coordinating just-in-time deliveries of everything from parts for our automobiles and airplanes to gasoline to food. You know, in the old days, you'd have a mega warehouse uh, somewhere near your town that stocked like a month's worth of food. Now, basically, when the trucks stop moving in three days, you're, you're out of just about everything. And people are so used to getting what they need when they, when they need it or when they want it that they're really not stocked. Like 100 years ago, being self-reliant and being prepared for long-term shortages was just a fact of life. You had to have supplies to carry you through the winter. You basically, someone in your town knew how to make, grow, or fabricate pretty much everything needed for supporting a reasonable existence. And nowadays, you know, stuff is grown and fabricated all over the world. And one little piece might come from China, another from Japan, another from Vietnam. And you put a few waves out there, a few little ripples to disrupt the chains of supply, and suddenly things fall apart. Like in Japan with the recent earthquake, what happened was, you know, a couple factories would go down that make in a certain part of the country that make key parts. And suddenly, just in time, at Toyota and other places and Honda are totally screwed up because a couple of factories are wiped out for a long time and those those parts that were supposed to be there on Monday aren't going to be there for six months to a year. Let's go into that a little bit further. Someone might argue that, you know, seeing all these brands in their shelves that we have a, a lot of abundance and a lot of varieties to fall back on if one goes down. Is this a misconception? I mean, how would we go from so many different varieties to, to a, a no varieties? How would that happen? Why would that happen? Well, it's a total misconception. <laughs> <laughs> and it does happen all the time. I mean, it happens whenever there's a hiccup, and, uh, and it happens all over the world. We're just so used to a global economy where everything's running smoothly. And then when stuff happens, like we had the oil embargo in, in the 1970s, the Arab oil embargo, and all of a sudden only 5% drop in world oil production, and, and within six months' time, gasoline prices at the pump tripled. I mean, it went up to almost two bucks a gallon back then, which in today's terms would probably be six or seven dollars a gallon with, with inflation. And so that happened very quickly from a minor blip. And today's blips in the world uh, have much more serious potential. I mean, then it was just like a certain faction of the world decided for political reasons to turn the tap down on oil. Nowadays, we've got climate change. We've got the peak in world oil production has been passed. And when you consider like, like real regular crude oil that we basically maxed that out about 2005 2006 it's been dropping ever since and we've been filling in the gap with things like tar sands and biofuels which are very environmentally detrimental fuels and and they're very energy intensive and and they tend to cause a lot of pollution at least with the tar sands they're very heavy polluters in the planet and you don't get much return much bang for your buck so we're seeing multiple areas in the planet now where our supply lines and chains could be disrupted for long periods of time and major disruptions that would make the oil embargo of the 70s look like 
look like a picnic. So it is quite sensitive, and we have the false illusion of abundance, but that illusion is being challenged on multiple fronts. For instance, it's been commonly written about in the last couple of years that all of the large fish, commercial fish species in the ocean are 90% or more depleted, meaning they're they're basically collapsing, that all of the big fish that we've been fishing, the tunas and the marlins and, and the swordfishes and the cods, the really big fish that, uh, you know, you get a lot of fish out of a single fish, those fish are basically gone now. And uh, we're still seeing them in the restaurants, but we're, we're, we're rapidly depleting the little, the little that's left of the last 10% of those fish stocks in the world's ocean. So what we're seeing is an illusion of abundance, but we're actually collapsing major supply centers on the planet are collapsing due to both overfishing, overlumbering, and climate change, and ecological decline. So in all of those areas, we're seeing we're seeing reducing returns from the planet, and yet Safeway's not showing us that. You know, and here in America, we're too far removed from the actual source of supply, so we're kind of insulated from it, and we're seeing that abundance in Costco and in Safeway that's not reflected by the natural capital on the planet. So we're headed for really, really serious crisis proportion supply problems in the very near future. Could you share your thoughts with us about how you think peak oil is going to play out in the near term? Out of the six trends of my perfect storm, where each individual trend is a potential civilization buster, most likely that peak oil is the one most in our face that will give us the biggest bang and the biggest short-term effect is peak oil. And we're already seeing that. In 2008, what really got the financial collapse going and burst the bubble of real estate was the fact that oil went up to just under $150 a barrel. And the world's economy just couldn't handle that and it started cascading down. And by December, this happened in like August, by December it was down to $35 a barrel from $147 a barrel to 35. And so peak oil, I mean, a year ago, first the U.S. military issued a report saying that by the end of 2012 and certainly by the end of 2015, we're going to see probably cataclysmic shortages worldwide where the, the gap between oil demands to run the world as we know it and the economies as we know it and the amount of oil that the world's able to produce, the, there will be a gap in there that will affect things and really, really start cause major problems in the world. So that's between 2012 and 2015. U.S. military projected that. And then that was followed by, in the next few months, by reports from both the German military and the U.K. military. So here our governments of the world are basically saying, everything's okay, don't be alarmed. And yet, you know, three leading world militaries come out with publicly released reports saying, hey, this is a real issue, this is a real problem, and it's going to be in our face, and it will be in our face as soon as 2012, and may take as long as 2015 to be in our face to catastrophic levels. And so you're going to see huge financial financial ripples, huge socioeconomic problems and ripples, and you're going to see where there must be proactive actions taken on the part of the world's governments collectively to avoid catastrophic collapse and catastrophic issues and catastrophic unrest. And so whether we're successful at, uh, at doing things to make the, uh, the crash not so painful or whether we just go full steam ahead, um, which is what we're currently doing, uh, time will tell. You know, <laughs> I don't have the answer Definitely. to that. So that probably means rationing or shortages? Both. 
It means rationing. It means shortages. It means huge financial seesaws in the world's stock markets and economies. It means major unrest. It means major food shortages because we're basically eating oil. And so in many places of the world, it will come down to, well, do we keep the grid going or do we pay our teachers? Do we subsidize energy issues so people can afford to work and farmers can afford to farm and so people can still afford to buy the food that's generated by that use of oil? Or do we just let the, quote, free market handle it all and let the poor people be damned and let them starve because they won't have the money for these things. So it's all interconnected and tied together. And the biofuels issue and the issue of taking food from the the world's hungry to make oil equivalents to keep our automobiles and trains and planes running, those issues are only going to get worse. And, you know, what solutions our leaders come to or whether it ends up uh, a Mad Max or a survival of the fittest and the richest, you know, time will tell. You mentioned uh, a moment ago the earthquake in Japan, and that was a really interesting scenario because here you have an incredibly technologically advanced country, a huge economy, the absolute pinnacle of what we consider to be a technological society, completely decimated by a natural disaster and an ongoing uh, nuclear crisis. How do you think the disaster in Japan demonstrated the need for disaster preparedness? Well, Japan not by any means a worst case disaster by a long shot. Here it was a huge mega quake, but the mega quake was like 90 miles offshore or something like that and was far from a major metropolitan industrial center and it still rocked the nation and it still caused a huge nuclear catastrophe along the lines of Chernobyl. It's not clear yet long term how big of a impact the nuclear waste will be. But if that had happened where the downwind area was not going out to the ocean, but was going out to huge population centers, then the Fukushima disaster would have been way bigger. So Japan is more like a mid-scale disaster. I mean, it seems huge to us, but imagine if that nine-point earthquake had hit Tokyo with 23 million people in the greater metropolitan area. Talk about collapsing the country in a hurry, that that would have done it. And, And certainly that potential is there. They've dodged that bullet so far. So Japan really shows, on a multiple scale, it shows the interconnectedness and it also shows the unanticipated consequences of natural or man-made disasters. So for instance, yeah, Japan is known for being an earthquake country and they're prepared and they're probably more prepared and better prepared than anyone else in the world to deal with earthquakes and they have stronger earthquake-resistant construction codes, yet the earthquake happens offshore, they have the tsunami, the tsunami wipes out, you know, entire cities are gone and villages are gone, and it has the rippling effect of knocking out both the backup generators and the grid that keeps the coolant flowing nuclear power plants, so they go into meltdown. This is a classic example of a, gee, you know, we thought we were prepared, but this was bigger and had more rippling unanticipated effects than we had planned for. And that's the case of disasters all over. Like, for instance, when, when Katrina nailed Louisiana, Mississippi areas, those the southeastern United States, 
there was a ripple effect because the disaster was so big that it impacted a huge area where the entire grid and infrastructure was wiped out. So what happens is, uh, you know, a few hours after this starts, well, the cell phones go down because the backup batteries that keep the cell phone relay stations going run out of power. Then two to three days later, the telephones go down because the backup generators that keep the switching stations for the phone system going, those have run out of gas and shut off. And then the gasoline is run out because there's no deliveries, because there's no grid and there's no pumping, and so there's no deliveries. So you have this huge cascading effect where one fragile system after another, after another, after another starts imploding because the effect is over such a large area that the you know the support systems to repair and fix and keeps these keep these things going that we take for granted just fall apart you know it's it's too big and it's too widespread so the grid infrastructure just collapses over a huge area and people say well that couldn't happen to me because you know maybe I don't live in earthquake country or maybe I don't live in wildfire country or hurricane country so it couldn't happen to me but let me present a couple of potential scenarios that could make Katrina looked like a picnic and Fukushima looked like a picnic and are, have a significant possibility of happening within the near future. One would be a purposeful terrorist act where a nuclear device is detonated, say, 70 miles above Earth. Say somebody got a missile and bought a nuclear device. Um, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot of money in the world who would love to see this happen. And there's a lot of starving people or people who are living on barely anything in, in ex-Soviet Union states who would, you know, could turn their backs for a few minutes and earn a few million dollars for doing that and allowing one of these devices to escape their country. So say this happened to get blown off at 60, 70 miles above the, the central eastern United States. Well, it would take an area from Quebec City to Dallas, Texas, and it would fry the grid. And it would fry the grid for years. So suddenly you have a Katrina-like infrastructure collapse all the way from Dallas, Texas to Quebec City, Canada, the entire East Coast gone. New York City, Stock Exchange, Washington, D.C., every Boston, New York, every city along that, that area, to a lesser degree on the farthest extents of it, but you'd have a, an electromagnetic pulse, which would induce such giant ma you know, currents in the wires of our grid system that it would fry these major power transformers that the grid totally relies upon. Now, if you fry one or two of these transformers, which has happened in the past from electromagnetic storms, then it's not that big of a deal because they can replace one or two. But the problem is that these transformers cost millions of dollars, and they used to take about a year, and they're special designed for each installation, they used to take about a year delivery to get one of these. And now with India and China ramping up, they actually take a, a three-year delivery to one of these. Well, if there's one or two that go down, you know, they can manage to get a backup. But when there was an electromagnetic solar storm that fried about a half dozen of these in South Africa a few years back, it screwed up the grid there for an entire year where they were rolling blackouts and, you know, partially electrified and all of that. And people were losing their stock in their refrigerator in, in their stores and, and because their refrigeration systems would go down unreliably day after day when the grid shut down. And that was only losing five of these. Now imagine a big EMP like that and suddenly you've lost 200 of these and maybe there's a couple spares on hand and, and they can ramp it up and they can get those 200 replaced in three to five years time. Uh, 
we're screwed. And your whole economy, the whole world's economy, all of that's collapsing. Well, now that requires a terrorist act. So let's pretend that the world is perfect and the CIA is perfect. If the terrorist is planning on doing that, that they figure it out and they stop it and it never happens. Well, Mother Nature has a similar, more widespread event that's perhaps not quite so devastating in the local area, but it covers a much larger one called a super solar storm. We had one in 1928 or so, in a couple of them in 1860, roughly. And the 1858 event was called the Carrington event. And it was northern lights that showed up as far south as San Juan, Puerto Rico, Cuba, Honolulu was lit up all night long with northern lights. And this was such an amazing geomagnetic event. They said the sky was like blood red. It was shimmering orange and green. And, you know, in those days, they had no electronics except for telegraphs, you know, the the Morse code telegraphs. And it fried telegraph stations. It induced enough currents that it actually set them on fire. People could send telegraph messages around the world without even being hooked up to their battery banks just simply by the induced currents in the lines. And it was a really kind of cool event that blew minds all over the planet, but it wasn't too disruptive because there was no fancy electronics in the planet for that to disrupt. And so the planet was pretty robust in those days. So here we have events where they've happened three times in the last 160 years. And these are, by modern standards, civilization-busting events. In other words, it would cook the Internet. It would fry the electronic control systems that control our chemical plants and our nuclear plants. So we could have Bhopal, India, events happening in chemical refineries and plants around the country where they just the systems that control them are fried. They're, they go out of control and anything can happen. And you could have Fukushima's and Chernobyl's happening all over the world because suddenly... The grid's down all over the place, and the electronic control systems depend on microelectronics are the most sensitive to the electromagnetic storms and the EMPs. And that's the kind of electronics that's fried most easily by these events, and it's what we rely upon to run the Internet and control all of the systems that keeps modern civilization rolling. So when you think, oh, our civilization is so robust and our technology is so terrific and nothing could bring it down, it's like, no, wait a minute. There's been three events in 160 years that could bring it down. It's just that the last event happened in 1928 before we had microelectronics and sensitive electronics that could be severely fried and affected by these events. So we're just pretending that everything is robust and everything is fine. And we're hoping that an event that's happened three times in 160 years just magically ain't going to happen in, in within our lifetimes. And that's nice wishful thinking. If I die tomorrow, yeah, it probably won't happen in my lifetime. But if I live another 20 or 30 years, it, and maybe even another two years, it may well happen in my lifetime. The point you're making is that our technologies are incredibly fragile and that these support networks that we depend on and expect to be here, such as our electrical grid and all the technology around us, we can't always count on them being here and they could go in the blink of an eye. And we see what's happening right now, even in Texas, because of the extreme heat, so much of their electrical grid is strained. And so there's a real possibility that they could start having rolling blackouts here in the next few days because of the strain in their grid. Those are very good points. We have a very fragile electronic grid that kind of supports our whole system. But on the other hand, we also have some very man-made issues, very serious economic issues that are affecting the United States and the world as well. And we've seen this coming to a head big time in the past few weeks with the spending limits being reached. We had the economist Manfred Max Neef on our podcast a few weeks ago, and he spoke about how the conditions in the United States lend themselves to social unrest. How likely do you think that civil unrest is an the near future and how can we prepare for it? Well, I think civil unrest is guaranteed. It's just a matter of which month, which year, when, what season does it start? Does it start slowly or does it, does it start off with a bank? An economy that's based on never-ending growth 
great so long as everything's growing and going along well. But it doesn't like it when things start shrinking and going in, in the other direction. So, for instance, when the real estate bubble was expanding, then people were making money like crazy. Jobs were plentiful. Unemployment was low. But as soon as the bubble started to break and things went the other direction and the stock market was crashing and people were getting laid off right and left. And the problem is that we're running into limits to our growth. The natural limits of the planet have been exceeded by our never-ending growth model and our consumption model and our economy model. And so we've been actually living in what's called overshoot on this planet since the mid-1980s. And what does that mean? That means that when you consider the global footprint of humanity as scientifically defined as the global footprint is how much are we consuming and polluting the earth versus how much consumption and pollution can the earth handle without going past the point of break-even and you're actually degrading and consuming the planet, then it can regenerate. And we passed that point in the mid-1980s. And as we first passed it, it was kind of like nobody paid much attention and everything seemed fine. But as we get further and further past the point of break-even. The amount of consumption and pollution we're doing on the planet each year would take like 1.4 Earths to accommodate us right now. And as we do that, we're doing what's called overshoot, which means that we're eating up the Earth faster than it can regenerate and polluting it faster than it can recover. And you can do that for a little while, but the longer you do it, the more severe the effects are on the planet and the harder it is to recover from it and the more severe the collapse when you eventually hit the end where systems start falling apart. So you're asking about social unrest, and I'm saying that because of our economic model and our growth model that we have been running the planet on from a societal point of view that mankind's impact on the planet is having, the inevitable result of continuing this model is collapse. And when you collapse the system, then you're going to have massive social unrest. You're going to have die-off. You're going to have over... It's called bloom and crash. It happens in nature all the time. And we've just thought that we've been beyond and above nature because of our technology. We have this, like, God is on our side, and, you know, God bless America, and our technology will save us, and everything will be fine, kind of. Like, let's just keep doing what we've been doing, and it's all going to be okay. And the truth is that's just a fairy tale. It's kind of like Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Nature doesn't work that way, and there are consequences from our actions. So... Yes, there is unavoidable social and political unrest and economic collapse on the near horizon. And uh, depending on what we do as proactive human beings, we'll either pretend that we can just keep doing what we've been doing and everything will be okay, which is what we're doing right now, or we'll wake up. Because of my book appeals to people, survivalists on the right and eco-greens on the left and everybody in the middle who simply wants to do the right thing for their family in the event of some kind of crisis or collapse in the planet. It's natural. You want to keep your family safe and healthy if at all possible. So my book appeals to people across the political spectrum from the far right to the far left, though, you know, people on both sides have some troubles with some of the things I say. But when I speak to people and I ask the question, how many in my audience believe that everything will be okay? Nobody raises their hand. Whether you're on the right or the left, nobody raises their hand. Not a one. Nobody, nobody thinks that the world is going to be okay? Everyone thinks the world is just going to end? They don't necessarily think it's going to end, but they don't think we can keep doing what we're going to do, and it isn't going to just fall apart. They know it can't keep going like it's going much longer. And that's people on the right and on the left. Then I ask people... How many of you think that no matter what we do, we've passed the tipping point, we're over the edge, and everything's going to collapse? And maybe 25% of the audience raises their hand. And again, this is across the political spectrum. And then when I ask people, well, how many of you think that we're going to get knocked around really bad, and then we stand a chance of making the radical changes 
that will allow us to find a path through the future where it just doesn't totally fall apart. And about two-thirds of us raise our hands, including myself. So sometimes I call myself the optimistic doomer. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm talking and you think, well, he sounds pretty bad. But on the optimistic side, I, I really do believe that as proactive human beings that we can find a solution to this. The problem is that right now we have a corporatocracy here in America. We're kind of like the leaders of the world. And we have the multinational corporations that own the political parties on both, you know, both the Democrats and the Republicans. And they have a stake in maximizing their profit. So they want to just keep business as usual because if they weren't making tons of money and on the top of the world right now, then they wouldn't be in that position of power that they're in. And so the guys who have the money and have the power want to keep doing more of the same because that's keeping them on top of the hill. This machine will give one single British bank a computer capacity greater than all but a handful of the world's most developed nations. Every detail of all the accounts held by the bank will be stored in its memory, ready for instant access and updating. It's the electronic equivalent of many thousands of ledger clerks. But the trading system that this vast computer makes possible is revolutionary because it's so ordinary. The heart of it is a simple desktop computer terminal, hardly more complex than a telephone and cheaper than most cash registers. It's linked to the central computer by the existing telephone network. Computer online. And the very nature of banking could change significantly. With the loss of America's AAA credit score, there are fears France could now follow the U.S. and become the latest country to be sucked into the deepening debt crisis. The dire economic situation in the U.S. has definitely got people worried and will bring about eventual unrest as seen in Europe to the U.S. The downgrade of uh, S&P of the, of the United States, um, whether it was warranted or not, I think speaks volumes about the, the shift of, of risk from the balance sheet of banks to the balance sheet of sovereign countries. But if cash is to be the first major casualty of the computer revolution, then what's to become of its support troops, the thousands of clerks and accountants who've spent their lives looking after it? Most of them simply won't be needed. So when that gets thrown into question, of course you're going to have mounting unrest. And I think ultimately because the system the architecture is, is such with the banking system and the, the way that the sovereign countries have been affecting backstops for, um, for the banking system, I think that you're going to see more unrest, especially in the United States, because the U.S. is an empire and it's, uh, it's the reserve currency of the world. So when, it, when, the, when the system collapses, it's going to be most felt in the U.S. because an empire sits on the nation state within which it resides like a giant parasite. So when that crumbles, it's the, it's the biggest, uh, it's, the, it's the final uh, piece to go. We could raise taxes on people. That's not the way. That, corporations are people, my friend. Of course they are. Everything corporations earn ultimately goes to people. So, where do you think it goes? What, what, whose pockets? Whose pockets? People's pockets. Okay, human beings, my friend. Well, I think that the Fed has proven inept. The system is architected so that it's going to self-destruct. Ever since we went off of Bretton Woods, we were running deficits in the 1960s. We had the 
Guns and Butter, Great Society of Lyndon Johnson, Vietnam War, that got us off of the de facto gold standard and the fixed exchange rate system of Bretton Woods. And that pushed us into the inevitable position that we're in today, which is boom, bust, boom, bust, and move to the point where the nation states take all the liabilities of the banking system and then effectively put themselves in a position where they've sat on the grenade. And the nation state is the, the vessel that within which humanity has been able to safeguard certain human rights. And if that goes, it's effectively a neo-feudalist model. Until now, computers have generally tended to reduce hiring rather than increase firing. But it's already clear that this won't be true much longer. A system that offers as many advantages as this one could catch on quickly enough to eliminate jobs at a much higher rate than normal staff turnover could cope with. The jobs that would be eliminated are unproductive, generally boring, and better done by a machine. But they do provide the livelihood of many thousands of people. Much has been written and said about the need to expand further education and retraining facilities. But now it seems we're going to find we'll actually have to do something about it. And rather sooner than we might have wished. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're speaking with Matt Stein, author of When Technology Fails. I've come to the conclusion watching how things have played out since the financial crash in 2007 and 2008 that the status quo is going to attempt to be maintained at all costs. And we see what's occurred because of quantitative easing and all the money printing. Commodity prices have shot up around the world, causing civil unrest in Northern Africa and other nations. And, you know, it makes you wonder how much longer the status quo can attempt to be maintained through all of these strange and complex financial instruments. Well, I agree. And I don't think it will continue much longer. I mean, it may surprise you with how long it takes before the death gasp of the financial system. But it's inevitable that if it continues much longer, then the six trends I've identified as the perfect storm, which will collapse the natural systems of the planet, will continue to the collapse point, and then it will fall apart. And if the financial system collapses sooner before the natural systems of the world are collapsed, well, then maybe the natural systems stand a chance that we'll do the right thing and we'll turn this around and we'll implement a global plan for sustainability that says, you know, these things must be done before we collapse the natural systems and end life as we know it on the planet. So in a sense, our best hope for survival as a race and a civilization is the collapse of the financial systems as we know it. Because without that, the powers that be will maintain business as usual right up to the very end and the natural systems will be gone, and without them to stand on, life as we know it is over. So it's like I'm hoping for financial collapse before we kill the planet. You know, <laughs> I mean, either that or maybe we'll magically wake wake up and our government will become a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we'll decide that the health of the people and the planet are, are inextricably linked, and we must make that first, and the corporate rule of the planet must be second. I'd like to think that we're going to snap to and make that happen, but I haven't seen signs of it yet. Well, Matt, I think that your argument is very convincing, and we've talked to many people on this show who feel very similar to the way that you feel, that there's a lot of unsustainability to the way our current culture is going, and that the current path that we're headed down is really unsustainable and not a very good one. What does five years from now look like? What does 10 years from now look like? How do we change society in a way that reflects the values that really need to happen to make, make the human race a sustainable species on this planet? Change is possible. And I think the first thing you have to do is awaken people on a massive scale. Right now, if we're just preaching to the choir, then there's not much hope for change. 
It has to be massive. So, for instance, in the, uh, the movement to end slavery, the abolitionist movement, it started small. They were preaching to the choir. There's people who felt that, you know, slavery was evil and must be ended. But when it became a mass movement where millions of people in America said this evil must be defeated, and they finally put someone in power to do that, Abraham Lincoln. Now, he did not single-handedly do that. He was thrust in there by many millions of people who, who said, we will change the course of history. This must change. And so it was only with those millions behind him that, one, he got elected, and two, he was empowered to do what he had to do. So when you look to the future, there's sort of door number one and door number two. And door number one is it becomes a government of the people, by the people, and for the people again without corporate control. And now there's a really wonderful tool called backcasting when people say, well, how do we get there? How do we make this future happen? And, and so this exercise called backcasting is really terrific. It's part of the natural step. What you do is, and we can start doing this collectively on a massive scale, and this is the way we can actually shift our course from collapse to global renaissance. And what you do is you start with the end in mind and you work backwards. So you picture yourself, say, 50 years from now, we have a global renaissance with this incredible planet where things are regenerating, the rainforests are regenerating, and the oceans have regenerated, and the water is clean and pure, and people are employed. And then you say, okay, wait a minute, how do we get there? And you start stepping backwards from the future into the past. You say, okay, population is stabilized, and it's actually decreasing. And then the oceans aren't being fished. So what does that mean? Oh, we've switched it over to a mostly vegetarian and vegan uh, because with the population on our planet, we can't afford to be throwing away all that protein and food and cutting down the environment to get like a quarter of the return or an eighth the return on our agricultural investment by growing tons of meat and growing all of this. So you step backwards. And then it's, well, how do we do it politically? You step it backwards. You say, oh, we funded all political campaigns had to have public funding because we had to make sure that our politicians and our government rulers couldn't be bought as they're being bought and paid for right now by the highest bidder from the corporations and the wealthy. So this is backcasting where you start with that image of the society that you wish to create and you visualize that and you focus on that and then you start stepping backwards, step by step by step. Like, how did you get from there to here? The problem is when you look forwards, you're blinded by projecting the past into the future. You're blinded by the, by the constraints of today and the way the world is working today. And when you step backwards, it's like you've thrown off those shackles and those constraints of thinking about things the old way. And suddenly you're in the future, and it's like, well, how did I get here? And you start moving backwards, stepping backwards from that future. And all of a sudden, the powers of creativity are there, and they're flowing in, and you're no longer bound by projecting past patterns forward. It's like you're freed of those past patterns and those shackles and those chains, and you can actually see how we could make it from here to there. So transforming the future is about throwing off the shackles of the past patterns, the past paradigms, the past models of economy and government and what makes the world go round and what is government for and what does it take to have full employment and how does it take to have a healthy population. You've got to throw those bold patterns and those old paradigms just like totally away. And then after you see that path, then it takes millions of people joining in the collective vision and taking control over government and making it happen. And that's why I'm the optimistic doomer, because I believe we can do it. And I believe that a lot of very conscious, powerful beings are alive on this planet today to help make that step and transformation from global collapse into global renaissance. And so I believe it's doable. Now, whether we're going to put it up 
pull it together from the ashes of modern civilization, or whether we're going to slide into global renaissance relatively smoothly and painlessly is really up to the collective consciousness and the, and the collective power and might of the peoples of the world. And this is a big drama that we're all here for, and I don't claim to have the answer. You know? <laughs> I've been given gifts and visions to some extent. So, you know, I have an MIT degree, and I never considered myself a survivalist. So I, I've been ecologically aware and concerned for years, but back in 1997, at that point in time, I had a 20-year practice of mostly daily prayer and meditation. And often I'd use it to get solutions to difficult engineering problems. I'd ask, pray and ask for guidance and help when I couldn't solve something in an acceptable way. And pictures would snap into my head. Well, back in 1997, I made a generic request. Sometimes I wish I'd never said it. I just asked for guidance and inspiration. I got this bomb dropped in my lap. I received a vision with a holographic storyboard outline for when my book, what became my book, When Technology Fails. Instantaneously, I get this like fully developed book concept in pictorial form dropped into my head. And my first thought was like, no effing way. I mean, I can't do this. I don't know all this stuff. Had you written a book before that? Never. I'd started developing my writing skills. I'd written a couple of technical journal articles. I, in fact, I learned how to type so I could write this children's story that I got kind of downloaded in the cosmic download. I never did manage to publish it, but maybe I'll publish it now. And several publishers said, hey, this is a great story. Keep going. But eventually I just lost speed with all the rejections and, and just dumped it. But I'm an engineer. I didn't consider myself a writer, though You know, people said I wrote well and my technical journal articles did well. And, and people, like I said, I got great compliments on the children's story. And, and one publisher said, you know, it was my favorite, but my boss nixed it and we're a small publisher, so keep going. But, you know, so here I am. And it took me, I didn't just jump up and say, well, you know, God talked to me today and I got to save the world and write this real cool book. I, it took me a year to just to throw the idea around, talk to some people. I dug up uh, Howard Reingold, the editor of the Whole Earth Catalog, who'd taken over from Stuart Brand, and he thought it was a great idea. And, you know, other friend writes TV and movie specials, you know, thought it was a good idea and told me how to write a proposal. And, and so it took me about a year to decide maybe I could do it, another year to write a proposal and sample chapters and find a publisher, and then another year to, like, bite the bullet and rack up the credit cards and hire artists and, you know, put my engineering business mostly on hold and, you know, go and hawk up to my ears and, and work. 70 hours a week and make the book happen. So it was three years almost to the day from the blast from above to the date that the book published three years later. And, you know, a long, difficult ordeal that sucked out all of the equity in my home. And and uh, certainly from a financial point of view, it, it wasn't very good for me because my first publisher uh, turned out to be on the verge of bankruptcy and never paid me. So, here, you know, here I basically bet the farm and lost, but I didn't give up. I found another publisher and, and kept going and, you know, they paid me and did a second edition and now I have a new book coming out and, you know, my life's not over. I mean, it could be that the self-reliant skills that I learned and taught and espoused and when technology fails saves my life and the lives of hundreds of thousands of others. And so uh, what economic pain and suffering I went through for a decade due to writing it is probably will pale in consideration to the value it will bring to myself, my family, and many others in the coming decade. Absolutely. And, and it seems like watching world markets, there's a lot of economic suffering for everybody coming up. So perhaps uh, you just got it out of the way early? <laughs> I, I think I did my penance early. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> like, it's like I got my, my economic lint done early and it's like, okay, I know what it's like to live with crushing debt and, you know, have no savings and no retirement and life still goes on, you know? Right. So, uh, so your net worth's a couple hundred thousand less than zero. Well, okay, you know, I'm still here. 
I can have a good day. I can smile. I, you know, sure, I had periods where it was really hard to smile because all of this is weighing on my shoulders. And eventually, I just let go. It's like, okay, you know, you're doing what you can. You know, declare bankruptcy if you need to. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm negotiating my debt down with lenders right now. And I still live in Lake Tahoe in this beautiful place. And I still got a roof over my head. And I'm not starving each day. I mean, compared to most of the planet, I'm way ahead of the game for six billion of the seven billion on the planet. So, you know, because I got a roof over my head and I eat each day and I'm not hungry and I'm healthy. So I'm doing great. Right. Definitely. And I think it's that process of letting go that we're only just starting to come to terms with on a global level. So it's interesting to hear how that played out in in your own life in putting together all of these incredible survival tools for people around the world. And you, you spoke for a minute about your spiritual practice. And we're going to talk just a minute about some steps for physical preparedness. But perhaps you'd you could speak to any advice that you would have for cultivating psychological and spiritual preparedness preparedness because that's going to be a really important component of dealing with such difficult issues in the times ahead. And perhaps maybe in addition to that, do you think that the reason you're able to deal with even talking about such dire consequences for human civilization is because you have that spiritual grounding, that core? Well, I think it definitely helps. In my background is I was born and raised Jewish in Burlington, Vermont, a very predominantly Christian community. And People were always trying to jam Jesus down my throat. And as a child, religious experiences, being bored in the synagogue with my parents or my grandmother was Christian and being bored in church with her. And then I started having some actual physical, spiritual experiences that were kind of undeniable. And uh, I got initiated by a 108-year-old Indian yogi in between my junior and senior year in college when I was an engineering intern at Plantronics, the headset people in Santa Cruz, California. And then I almost dropped out two weeks before my start of my senior year at MIT. But having... A spiritual base is very important for giving you that sort of grounding and centeredness. So when the world is falling apart, when you feel like you can lean on spirit and in a variety of forms, I mean, I'm not saying you got to be Christian or Hindu or Jewish or Catholic or, you know, anything. It's independent of religion. It's more based on your true spirituality and not what religion you have to be a part of. But having that base to know that there's an inner compass that inside of you there's a unfailing source of strength and inner guidance and direction and intuitional guidance that each and every human being has and can tap into that is really critical when things start falling apart and you don't know what to do see the the, the rational mind is a great tool and it's very very helpful and i use it all the time and so do most of us but it can only make proper decisions when it has a good information base to draw upon and compute within the little computer of your brain. But the inner compass of spirit just simply knows what to do and can tell you in an instant and in a flash exactly which direction to turn and where to go and how to step and what to do and whether you should stay put or whether you should move. All of that is potentially available to each and every one of us. Now, primitive man relied on that because those human beings that did not use that inner compass, well, they died in the battlefield, or they died in the flood, or they died here and there, and those gene pools went out. See, that inner compass has been there throughout time and is very entrenched in our gene pool because the ones who had it, they lived, and the ones who didn't have it or didn't trust it or didn't use it, well, they, they died. And so developing that, and in my book I talk about developing the survivor personality and give some exercises like the pit of the stomach to help you make decisions when you just simply don't know what to do. And you're at a loss. And you know you can't trust the rational mind 
when it's changing its mind every minute. That's when you know it's like untrustworthy. It's like, okay, don't have the right or enough information to make a good decision because my mind is going crazy. It's flipping, flopping all over the place. It's like, I got to get in touch with the inner compass now because this mind that thinks it's know what it's doing, well, in the last five minutes, it said I should do five different things. So what do I trust? Obviously, I can't trust that. And that's when you have to quiet your mind and you have to get in touch with that inner compass, whether you use a pit of the stomach exercise or something else. That's when you need to get that inner compass and, and get that direction. And countless survivors of situations have said that, you know, they were flipping out and they were in a crisis situation and then suddenly they knew what they had to do. There's an inner quiet strength that took over and suddenly that inner voice knew. And every human being has had that experience where that gut feel came in very strongly and sometimes we ignored it and we got our fingers burned and other times we listened to it and we couldn't figure out with our head why we should listen to it, but we did. And afterwards, it's like, oh, thank God I listened. Thank God I followed that feeling because now I saw what was coming around the corner and now I understand why that intuitional inner compass was urging me to do a certain thing which I couldn't figure out with my head. So very critical. shocked by what you've seen there last night? No, not at all. I have been living in London for 50 years. There are so many different moods and moments. But what I was certain about, listening to my grandson and my son, is that something very, very serious was going to take place in this country. Our political leaders had no idea. The police had no idea. But if you looked at, at, at young blacks and young whites with a discerning eye and a careful hearing, they have been telling us, and we would not listen, that what is happening in this country to them, I don't call it writing, I call it an insurrection of the masses of the people. It is happening in Syria, it is happening in uh, Clapham, it's happening in Liverpool, it's happening in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and that is the nature of the historical moment. Mr. Howe, if I can just ask you, you are not a stranger to riots yourself, I understand, are you? You have taken part in them yourself. I have never taken part in a single riot. I've been on demonstrations that ended up in a conflict and have some respect for an old West Indian Negro and stop accusing me of being a rioter. Because if you want to tell me to get abusive, you just sound idiotic. Thank you very much for joining us from Croydon. Darkest Howe, their writer and broadcaster. Are you an intelligent, free-thinking individual? Do you have rational and well-researched opinions? Does your global outlook not fit into one of two preconceived and oversimplified categories? If so, you may have a problem. But don't worry, the solution is only one click away. It's called the mainstream media. media. If consumed on a daily basis, the mainstream media can help significantly reduce the symptoms caused by individuality and autonomy. For years, millions of people around the world have been trusting the mainstream media to help relieve the pain and suffering caused by thinking about stuff. Millions of tests have proven it. This is John before he began consuming the mainstream media. Whether we like it or not, every aspect of our daily lives will be in some way affected by peak oil. It's unavoidable. And this is John after only 30 days of treatment. I sincerely believe that Britney Spears is not fit to have custody of her children. Kevin has repeatedly proven himself to be a much better parent. 
Say goodbye to complex questions and intelligent debates. And say hello to Timberlake, Hilton, and terrorists. So much terror, you'll be terrified. Don't live another day without it. Ask your doctor or government about it. The mainstream media. media. The mainstream media. Because you're not paid to think. We're paid to do it for you. The number of doomsday believers is on the rise, but now it's also the struggling global economy that's increasingly making people stock up on basic necessities. A typical house in a regular suburban town, but here a family's preparing for the end of the world. A German Mauser and P-38 from World War II, a 12-gauge shotgun, a 40 caliber pistol, and an AR-15. Weapons and ammunition are key. If we're carrying this out on the street for some reason, all hell broke out and it's, you know, end of the world type situation. Breakdown of government is one thing a lot of people are preparing for now. We're uh, facing possible pay delays for Social Security. Um, I don't believe I'm going to need any of this kind of equipment for that, but you're going to have a lot of Americans that are kind of upset. Not so much political, but more economic. Um, I see people every day lose their jobs and, and uh, have to rely on food that they've had stored up previously to live on that food just because they've lost their job. Tsunami and earthquake in Japan a couple months ago. Uh, amateur radio played a big part in that in uh, providing emergency communications when everything else failed. With uncertainty taking over the U.S., they say those who seem paranoid today may end up being the smartest tomorrow. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today we're talking with Matt Stein, author of When Technology Fails. It's very interesting that you talk about that subconscious mind, that inner compass, because in so much of our society, we are told by our parents, by you know the church, by commercials, that this is the wrong path. It's not the right way to follow that inner compass. It's not the right thing to follow your emotions. There- well, the inner compass is separate from the emotions. See, so we can be misled by emotions on one side, like fear is a, a classic thing. Fear is great for telling you that you're in danger and you got to worry and you got to do something. But when you've got the constant alarm bell of fear going on, you can't actually feel the inner compass. You can't actually hear the inner voice. Would you say that world power relies on you not hearing that inner compass to dominate people, to make you go to your job every day, to be that uh, wage slave, that working poor that is so easily ruled? Is that what government and, and powers have relied on throughout history to keep people down? I don't think government is caring about, you know, it's like people have certain agendas, you know, people in power, and it's not necessarily they're trying to keep people down, they're trying to keep themselves on top. There's sort of a difference there. It's like, if you can scrabble up to the top and join me, that's fine too. But, you know, it's like, I don't care about you in the bottom, I just want to be on top. Now, it's true, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists that say, no, they're actively trying to keep everyone down, they're trying to do this, and, you know, maybe so. I don't tend to subscribe to that, but it's, it's not that important. But I will say that the inner compass on a massive scale in humanity is telling people they're in trouble. Paul Hawken wrote a really wonderful book a couple years back called Blessed Unrest. And at the time, when he first wrote it, I think they found 500,000 organizations in the world that have spontaneously sprung up working on social and ecological change in the planet. Well, as they researched it further, it was more like 2 million. So what that indicates is that humanity on a massive, massive scale is getting that we're like in serious trouble. It's like we're riding on the train, the speeding train down the tracks, and it's headed for the end of the line, and there's like a big stone wall at the end of the tracks, and we're headed for that. 
Would you say that people that understand that concept of that inner compass, that understand where that inner compass is pointing, can see where the trend of history is going, can kind of see the future, kind of see where the directions are pointing, and they can kind of predict it, and that other people are just blatantly ignoring it? I think, you know, like like I said, when I talk to people, both on the right and on the left, of course, they're fairly aware because they're coming to listen to me talk, you know, so they're not just at home watching TV or, or whatever. The big problem is that people don't have a clue as to what to do. They know we're in trouble on the planet. They have an uneasy feeling that we're on the freight train headed for the end of the line, and they don't know what to do other than try to, like, do their best every day to get through the day, to keep their job, to make money, to keep food on the table or whatever, and they just don't know what to do about it. So I think the inner compass is telling humanity in a massive scale we're in trouble, but we're not hearing clearly enough as to what the solutions are for stopping the freight train and getting off the tracks and going in a new direction. That's the problem is like we're hearing the trouble part and it's causing a lot of anxiety, a lot of freaking out all over the planet, but we're not hearing the solution part very well because the solution part requires radical change. It's been attributed to Einstein that he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that's exactly what we're doing. It's, it's like, well, let's just do more of the same and maybe that'll fix our problems. And it's like, no, doing that is what got us into the problems and more of the same will make the problem worse. So how do we do something different? to get out of the problems. And that's tough because we got all this momentum. That train has a lot of momentum. And it's like the Titanic headed for the iceberg. It had a lot of momentum. By the time they saw the iceberg, they're going too fast and they couldn't change course and slow down fast enough to avoid hitting the iceberg. So that's kind of where we are right now. We're sensing that iceberg is out there and we're on the speeding ship. We don't really know how to slow it down and change course. And many of us are saying, well, speed up and keep going on the same course because that's how we made money to begin with. And that's what made us rich and powerful to begin with. So let's just keep speeding up and going faster on the same course. And those are the people on CNBC and on Bloomberg.com and et cetera. But we spoke about backcasting and using that to remove some of the barriers to action. And we also spoke about fear and fear is often such a barrier to change. And you mentioned this pit of the stomach exercise. Could you go into how that works? Okay. So I'll use a real-life example, tragic example, but a real example. A few years back, there was a guy, a James Kim, a well-known and liked person in the TV industry and high-tech industries in the Bay Area. He was visiting people in Seattle with his wife and two infant children in the car for Thanksgiving. And on their way back from Seattle, they had a reservation on the coast of Oregon at a hotel. And they, they were traveling down the Central Valley of Oregon on the freeway on Highway 5, and they missed their exit, drove a couple hours past their exit, and realized the mistake and looked in the map and found a shortcut, or what looked like a shortcut, that would cut straight to the coast over the mountains on like a small road, secondary road. Well, they started up this road. It changed to dirt. The, the rain changed to snow. They made a couple wrong turns. They end up getting hopelessly stuck and they were terrified because the road was dropping off like cliffs on the right, and they're on this tiny little dirt road and snow-covered, so they decided to spend the night. Well, they woke up the next morning, and they were snowbound, and there's no signs of civilization in sight, and they're totally stuck, and they can't get anywhere, and so they spent a couple days in the car. Well, after two, three days, they'd run out of food, they burned their tires, 
run out of gas, staying warm, run out of food and water, burn their tires trying to make smoke signals to get somebody's attention and realize, well, okay, you know, I can't just let my family starve and, die and freeze to death here. I've got to do something. So at that point, he just didn't know what to do. So the rational mind says, well, follow the river. It'll take you to civilization eventually. That's like the classic rule of survival. Hit his stomach says, okay, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to get in touch with the inner compass. Now, how do I do that? So now we'll talk about pit of the stomach. Pit of the stomach said, here you are, James Kim. You don't know what to do. You got option A, option B, option C, but you're not sure which one's right. So instead of figuring it out with your head, you get in touch with the compass. So you take a few deep breaths, and if you're spiritual, you ask God, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Holy Spirit, whatever your spiritual leanings are. If you're not spiritual, you just do a generic, like, please help me, you know, help me get the answer. You breathe deeply, and you focus your conscious awareness on the area between your belly button and your rib cage. That's the pit of your stomach. The Chinese call it the Dantian. You keep breathing until you feel the muscles relax in this area, your pit of your stomach. And by focusing your attention on that area, you're quieting your thoughts. You're not up in your head thinking about thoughts. You're focusing your awareness on these muscles. So once it relaxes, the goal is to think in pictures, not with regular linear rational thought, but pictures. So what do you do? You picture option A, which is the logical option, hiking down the river. You just, in your mind's eye, imagine yourself hiking down the river doing option A. Well, then you feel a pit of the stomach. Now, if you feel it tighten up into a knot, it's a bad choice. Or if you feel a queasy, sick, kind of nauseous feeling in your stomach, bad choice. If you feel a relaxed sort of ah feeling in the pit of the stomach, that's a good choice. So now maybe he does option A and it's like, oh, the stomach knots up. It's not a good choice. So then he thinks, well, maybe I should stay up on the ridge. Maybe the ridge top will be good. Maybe somebody will be looking for me in a helicopter or maybe I'll see a distant house, you know, in the distance that I can walk to or something like that. So maybe I should go up to the ridge. So you do, you do the quieting thing. You take some deep breaths. You offer your prayer. You focus on the pit of your stomach till everything's relaxed. Now you picture option B, like hiking up to the ridge and hiking along the ridge top. And then you feel it. Oh, well, maybe he gets a bad feeling again. And it's like, well, gee, that didn't work either. You know, that's not a good one. So then you try, well, option C is sitting and waiting with my wife in the car. Now, the rational mind would say, that's the last thing you should do. That's the sissy way out. That's the chicken. You've been doing that. It hasn't worked. Nobody's come along. You're going to die. You're going to freeze to death. But maybe pictures option C, staying in the car, maybe gets that ah feeling of do that. Now, that's when it's going to be tough because the mind's telling you, go, 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 do something. Don't just sit here and do nothing. Well, it turns out, what did he do? He followed the rational mind, the rule of survival, followed the river. He had city street shoes and he didn't have much in the way of clothing. He got wet in the snow and he was found face down a few days later, dead like a mile away from a hunting lodge that he could have broken into and gotten everything he needed to survive and continue on his journey. Oh, wow. But what happened to the family? The family was rescued. The father of James Kim, when they didn't show up where they were supposed to be, called on authorities, he called out a search, he hired people privately to look for them, and they eventually found the wife and two children, hypothermic and cold, and very hungry, and very uncomfortable, but okay, in the car. And then a day later, they found the husband face down on the side of the creek a mile from the hunting cabin. So it's a tragic story. but. It's a classic example of how the rational mind, he did everything, given the tools he had on hand, after the initial mistakes, he did everything, quote, right, and it still killed him. But the inner compass could have saved him. So this is an exercise that I used long before I called it the pit of the stomach. I used it to help me make decisions like, what job should I take out of college? And I ended up actually, out of my top three choices of jobs, when I prayed on it and, and did the pit of the stomach before I knew what it was called, it told me to take my least favorite to the three options that I never would have picked with my rational mind. Well, it turned out my wife-to-be worked across the street and her father worked in the building next to me and we frequented the same place for lunch. 
And so it was like the voice of spirit telling me, no, your future is here, even though you'd rather take that job in Colorado and go rock climbing in El Dorado Canyon every day. You need to take the more boring job at Hewlett Packard in Palo Alto because there's other things you got to do in your life and they're wrapped up with the people you're going to meet and connect with there. My rational mind could never have figured that out, but it was totally clear when I prayed on it and asked that guidance. And it became clear a year later why I had to make those choices, even though I really didn't like the job and it really was boring i was there for other stuff too you know (laughs) right that's a really fascinating example of how it works and we've spoken quite a bit here about spiritual preparedness and how to make decisions and we wanted to talk a little bit about physical preparedness and assessing your situation and preparing for some of these tumultuous times ahead one of the examples that you drew on in when disaster strikes you noted that back in the early 1900s it was something like 30 percent of the population that was involved in full-time farming or fishing or ranching or just food production and today it's just about 2% of the U.S. population that's feeding the other 98%. And only 17% of the U.S. population is living in in rural areas where they'd even really have the space to do any kind of large-scale food production or be involved with food and providing it for other people. So definitely food is a huge concern there, but water, other things. So how do you go through that kind of assessment for your physical situation? preparedness is outlined both in When Technology Fails and in the new book, When Disaster Strikes. When Technology Fails is more focused on the big picture. It's short-term preparedness, long-term preparedness. What kind of low-tech things, if everything fell apart, could you fall back on so you could maybe go back to an 18th century level of technology rather than the Stone Age and a Mad Max scenario? When Disaster Strikes is more focused on specifics of like, okay, I live in earthquake country, hurricanes, cold weather, storms. How do I deal with them? Pandemic. How do I prepare and deal with that. It's more like preparing for the short-term issues and not so much the civilization-busting issues. And and so it does a better job in some things, but it doesn't get into the wide range of topics that the other covers. So the very first thing is every family should have a 72-hour emergency kit. And that provides you with the basics of food, water, shelter, clothing, and medicine for you and your family for the minimum of the first three days after some kind of disaster. Because in Kobe, Japan, it was as much as nine days before many people received relief food food and water. So you're on your own for a long time in a major disaster scenario. And three days is kind of a minimum. It's best if you can have at least a couple weeks of food on hand and enough so that for three days, if you had to throw it in your car, you can do it. You have to put it on your back to have the extra gear to do it. That's very important. Developing your 72-hour kit is like a great start. It doesn't cost a lot of money and it helps starting you thinking along these terms. Then the next thing you start projecting outward and say, okay, what kind of skills can I develop? Some people say, well, you know, I don't have money. I can't buy like a five-acre retreat and off-grid. And certainly with the financial thing I went through, that's out of reach for me now, even though I once had 10 acres, with it, including an acre of garden and chickens and all that good stuff. And I'm working to get back there, but you know, financial realities is I can't just go out and buy it today's age. And most people are in that situation. So if you don't have the money to do like the off-grid retreat and the nice acre of garden and raise your chickens and all of that, you can start developing your skill set because a skill set is something you can take with you anywhere. And so you can have the basics of self-reliance. Most anyone can have some camping gear and a backpack and a 72-hour kit. And you can start gardening. If you don't have any land, you can work in a community garden, develop your ability to grow food and develop those kinds of skills. When the Soviet Union collapsed in the 90s, on Christmas Day, the Politburo came in and said, that's it, it's over, we're dissolving the USSR, it's gone. And a lot of people got by in their kitchen gardens, on their little plots that everyone had been growing and supplementing food with 
because you know the system in the Soviet Union didn't work very well. Those kitchen gardens are what kept people alive through tough times. And developing your skills in a public garden or window gardens and window boxes, you know, that's kind of the next level you can take. And then certainly there's another area of big importance is developing your first aid skills and your self-healing skills, your alternative medicine bag of tricks. Because we live in a day and age of antibiotic-resistant superbugs grown in factory farm-fed animals. Some brilliant fool figured out that if you feed subclinical doses of antibiotics to farm animals, then they grow fatter, faster, and your profit margins are better because the animals can live in close quarters that are very obscenely unclean and unfit for life as we know it. And yet you feed them a lot of antibiotics and they don't get sick and die in those unclean conditions. But it also makes them perfect farm for growing superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. And when we eat that meat that's filled with antibiotics, then it helps bacteria in our own bodies to grow resistant to those antibiotics. So it's, it's like a really evil chain of events. And so having your little bag of tricks of colloidal silver and grapefruit seed extract and garlic and homeopathy and various alternative healing bag of tricks is another important aspect of self-reliance and planning to do the best you can for you and your family in, in this age of turbulence and change. It's a complex analysis, and I think it's something that no one can really sit and prescribe a perfect method of how to prepare it because it's different for every person in every situation. And so in our last interview with Manfred Max Neef, he was saying the most important thing for moving forward is being coherent with yourself and being able to analyze your situation. And I think talking about the pit of the stomach exercise is an excellent way of doing that. Is there anything you'd like to comment on or bring up before we close out today? Well, I'd say that developing both your self-reliance and your survival library is a great start, but then don't just leave it at the library. Start building on your 72-hour kit. Start building on your skill sets. Start building on your tools, your alternative healing tools. Go beyond just being the armchair person and take it to the next step. And certainly having resource tools like when technology fails or when disaster strikes are really great things to have, but I encourage you to go beyond them. So in the back of when disaster strikes, there's a great bibliography or, or recommended place resources, books to And each chapter in When Technology Fails ends in a sort of a mini whole Earth Catalog resource guide that guides you to the best books, the best DVDs, best places to buy materials. Even though it's a mammoth, you know, encyclopedic text, I can't teach everything about everything. So I try to teach the basics. So if you had nothing but my book, you could, and you were reasonably handy, you could figure this stuff out. And as a practical how-to book, you could do without any other resource other than my book. But naturally, if you wanted to go deeper on any subject, then you're going to need to pick up something else because each chapter of my book can be the fodder for an entire whole book on that subject. So it's a big, giant book, but it can't do everything. So my motto that I like to leave people with is I ask people, I urge people to do their best to change the world and to do their best to be ready for the changes in the world. And that's all you can do. All you can do is do your best. That wraps up our discussion with Matt Stein on when technology fails, when disaster strikes, the fragility of technology, and some tools that you can use in a life or death situation to make the right decision. And Seth, do you ever see yourself winding up in a life or death situation like that? Are you counting the life or death situations that I've been in constantly through since I was a small child? Because well, I guess every- so, then, then yes. 
I do. <laughs> yes, I guess every day is a life or death situation when you think about it, but yeah. I don't really think about it that way. So, do you, you want to hear about one of these life or death situations I was recently in? Yeah, tell me about it. Well, one of my friends has a bunch of property and there's a little little tree bench up in the tree about 20 feet up in the air. And there's this ladder that goes up there. So we climbed up to the, the top of the ladder and sat up on the bench there. And it got dark at the sunset. We were watching the sunset. And then we start climbing down. And I put my foot in the ladder and the thing just starts like shaking. Like this oh, no. It's very, very teeterful on one leg. So I'm hanging on to the, the top of the bench about 20 feet in the air, trying to move the ladder into a, a position with just my feet and in, into a way that... Uh, would hold my weight and my friend's weight on our way down and just hanging there just thinking about man i could just i could just drop and and this ladder could fall and i could how far was it to the bottom it was about 20 feet up in the air it's pretty high tree yeah, yeah, so I'm hanging there under the bench. My arms are starting to get tired because it's like three or four minutes go by. I'm just still hanging on, just trying to move the ladder. And like then I'm like finally, oh man, this is just, I don't I don't care. I'm just gonna do it. I'm just gonna do it. So I finally got get the ladder in, into a position that I think is gonna hold my weight, and I just start going down real slowly, real slowly. And then I'm just like go real fast at the end and jump off, and I'm just fine. And I was like, Whoa. yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You can go down now. <laughs> So that was a very exciting situation that I was. It makes my hands a little bit sweaty just thinking about it. Wow, that's crazy. Disaster struck for you. On it did, it did. Technology almost did fail, but luckily the ladder came through and, and didn't fail. Wow. Well, Matt Stein spoke a lot about the fragility of our electrical grid and how just a simple EMF or solar flare, you know, a simple solar flare, could take out our entire grid because these transformers to have such a long lead time for when they could actually get ordered and installed and what do you think would happen if suddenly all of our iPhones and laptops and computers became useless in just a matter of a few hours because once the grid went down they couldn't be charged yeah it would be very dark when nighttime came around we wouldn't yeah. be able to talk to each other and that would be really sad you think yeah. people would feed more if there is no iPhones? It's hard because traditionally as a species lived in close communities and Skype and our phones are awesome because they allow us to maintain connections over long distances. But the downside is that those are long distances. So it would cut you off from so much of the world. The internet wouldn't be operating who knows how long it would take to get stuff like that back up. And you know what? I bet there would be a uh, perfusion of births that would have occurred nine months later after that solar flare went off because, you know, people get kind of bored. Instead of watching <laughs> the sitcom on TV, they would find some other activities? Yeah, people need to find other activities to keep themselves amused. And there's amusing activity that happens every day that yeah. is easy to cheap. Well, one of the things that clued me into how fragile the barrier is between what we think of as normal and what's crazy was back in 2008, actually, after there were some hurricanes in the Gulf and they disrupted the oil flow to a pipeline that led into the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, where it was at the time. And suddenly, within a few days, there were some really small gas shortages. And those gas shortages sparked the notion, the idea, that there was scarcity in the system. So what did everyone do? Everyone started running to the pumps and filling up because there were a few gas stations that were running out. And so then, because everyone was topping off and filling up, they depleted the gasoline at every other gas station. And so what was a very minor 
gas shortage suddenly turned into a real catastrophe and people were like blaming the mayor and there was like craziness on the streets and people were pulling knives on each other in the lines to go and get gasoline and like one morning I was up at five in the morning and I was like oh, I need to put gas in the car so I drove just right across the street to the nearest gas station it was right next to me and there was this guy who drove up and put not even a quarter gallon in his car and then sped off. And I was like, this is insanity. Why is everyone freaking out? Because the gas stations would have gasoline in the morning and they wouldn't have gasoline in the afternoon. So the only time to fill up was in the morning. But the whole infrastructure was so dependent on everyone having a car that was full of gasoline so they could drive, get to a job that gave them money so they could survive, that suddenly a minor gasoline shortage turns into something really crazy. And going off that, towards the end of the week and a half that all of this was occurring, it totally went into zombie apocalypse territory because I was driving around, or maybe that was when I was riding the bus. I was riding the bus downtown to go to my job and I started walking around at lunch and there were like people with their cars that had just run out of gas. And so they tried to pull them up on the side of the road and it was like blocking downtown traffic. And they were just like out there kicking tires and you saw abandoned cars everywhere. And I was like, uh oh, this is starting to get really bad. But fortunately the taps opened up and gasoline flowed and it all got back to normal. It's very hard to stop ideas and fear as a spreading phenomenon. As we see in the stock market, you know, constantly, when somebody gets gets a, an idea that the world is about to shut down or the gas is about to stop flowing or you know the the currency or the or the government's about to be degraded in its, its lending abilities everyone runs to the immediate source of whatever's going to be cut off and tries to stock up so much on it you see that a lot in the south when it snows everyone storms the supermarket and, and stocks up on bread and milk because when are you going to get be able to get bread and milk again if it snows you in and you see it a lot with the schools will, will close down when an inch of snow falls because it's very scary. Yeah, absolutely. Like Matt Stein was saying, it was regular 50, 60 years ago to have food in a pantry stored up. In a future episode, we're going to be talking with Sander Katz, who's a fermentation expert. And he was saying, you know, a long time ago, or not even a long time ago, but like a hundred years ago, everyone fermented their own food. They stored up tons of food in their basements, in their pantries, because they would harvest whatever came in from the garden and then store it over the winter in these fermented vessels and have stuff stored up for years and years that way. But nowadays, we really are dependent, uh, for most of us are really dependent on the three days, four days of food supply that come in through a truck to our grocery stores. And you think that the stores are completely stocked and full, but what you don't see are the tons of trucks that come in and the stockers late at night that fill up those shelves and make them full for us. And suddenly everyone gets the idea all at once, they're gonna stock up on as much food as they can. And suddenly the shelves empty out really quickly. They do, and that just goes to show you the thin line that separates our current situation from utter zombie apocalypse. <laughs> That's a pretty bleak way of looking at it, but it's definitely a... Uh... <laughs> well, Justin, who, <laughs> we, we talked to all these, men, these, these guys who, you know, are predicting the end of the world. How else am I supposed to think? <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Oh. It's definitely not the end of the world. There will still be a world. But oh, it's just, really? yeah, it's just important to recognize the serious issues that our society is facing and to prepare accordingly, right? 
Just large population die-offs is what you're saying. No, no, not large population die-offs. I'm saying periods of potential shortages, say at the supermarket, of particular items. Right. Which may lead to dysporas from large cities into the countryside and food shortages and gasoline shortages. And I, don't, I don't know about that, but in... Everyone's just going crazy and then a large virus will break out and everyone's going to get infected and then we'll have to hold ourselves up in castles and shoot all the zombies that are coming and then we'll have to get grenades and throw them at the zombies. Uh, maybe, yeah, poss- possibly. I, I doubt that, but... Um, like Dmitry Orlov was writing about in his most recent edition of Reinventing Collapse, he thinks that the peak oil scenario doesn't have to be that serious for it to turn into something that's very drastic. Like the amount of oil that's disappearing from the global economy can be quite minor. But because of the dynamic that I was just talking about, once people get the idea that there's a shortage or once there's a very small shortage, suddenly everything starts cannibalizing itself. It starts shutting itself down. The small amount of gasoline gets a bunch of people who are full of fear and afraid jumping on it all at once and so then it causes shortages faster and faster than they technically rationally should be occurring and that's the problem human beings aren't rational animals we're only rational animals when it's not a life or death situation when we have those extra resources where you can sit back and think about something and that's why tools like what Matt Stein talked about with the pit of the stomach technique can really take you out of the fear of the situation and put you in a place where you can make a good decision. So I have a really important question to ask you, Justin. Yes. Do you think a Canadian zombie will be more polite than an American zombie? I don't know. (laughs) I think that the Canadian zombie will be more likely to value the collective zombie group and, and definitely care more about whether his or her fellow zombies are eating the screaming survivors. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So terrible. I, I did like that part where Matt talked about the pivot of the stomach technique, and I feel like that kind of technique is very beneficial in our very fast-paced world. We talked a little bit about how large institutions steer you away from using your inner moral compass. We have a lot of inputs that try to distract us from the ways that we're supposed to go by giving us you know, television and religious ideas that kind of take you away from the direction that you might feel that you need to go in if you didn't have those inputs. And it's interesting to take those ideas and just put them on a shelf, like we do it a lot with the extra environmentals, to put all your cultural baggage, all your cultural ideas and self on a shelf and just examine the situation around you. In our last episode with Manfred and Max Neef, maybe it was a little unsatisfying when we asked him, you know, what does he tell his students? He was like, well, you have to be coherent with yourself. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Well, in this episode, we talked about what it means to be coherent with yourself, to actually value your individual needs and in your local situation. And I think it's doing things like that pit of the stomach technique or having that practice of meditation like Matt was talking about that allows you to be coherent with yourself, to know what you need to do, to do what you need to do, because everyone's situation is different. Everybody should do what they need to do at all times. Exactly. But we don't. We don't do what we need to do. And that's and that's the challenge. That's the hard part. It is yeah. a challenge. So everyone out there in um, extra environmental land, we employ you to do what you need to do. I mean employer, not employee. We don't have money. That's true. We don't have very much money. So yes. we, will, we implore you to do what you need to do out there, extra environmentalists around the world. Yes. Do what you need to do. do, do just do it. 
you know, just do it. If somebody wants to um, get in contact with the extra-environmentalists, they feel motivated and they feel like this is what they need to do today. How do they do that? Yeah, let's say you just focused on your inner voice and it is telling you that you need to contact Seth and Justin because you've just listened to another episode of The Extra Environmentalist and you can do that through email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com or they can give us a call and leave us a voicemail and how can they do that? They can do that using their touchtone telephone or their Skype or their Google Voice. They can dial 1-919, one for the USA, 1-919-701-XTRA and that is 9872. So again, that number is 919-701-9872. And they can also find us on our Twitter feed as well as our Facebook feed where we have many, uh, many of you have found us there and have had a lively conversation, which we are very excited about, aren't we, Justin? Yeah, so awesome that so many people are feeding back into our Facebook posts and liking things that we say. And man, it's, it's great really cool so get on there and join us get on there and you know follow that inner voice out to facebook where you can spread your message of inner beauty and love and and a podcast is all about its community that's that's what we're doing is we're building a community of people who are aware of these issues and who know how to discuss them on an intelligent and rational manner because all signs are pointing towards tumultuous times ahead and there's going to need to be people who see it coming because if you are aware that there might be the potential for social unrest or something like that when it occurs it can still be traumatic but at least you can take yourself back a bit and know that you have some preparation or know that you're at least emotionally or uh, psychologically prepared because for the vast amount of people who just listen to the mainstream media all the time they just think that the recovery is on the way and that growth is returning and suddenly everyone will have jobs just like everything used to be but it's not yeah it's not people are getting slowly woken up individually when they lose their job and unemployment benefits go away and everyone's having to make the adjustment on their own individually on their own basis it's not a culturally wide transformation yet it's important to have cultural leaders as well people in the community who can understand these large things coming down and you know help guide people in the right directions and and provide them with material when they come asking and saying hey there is the extra environmentalist when you want to listen to new ideas exactly that's what it's all about is when someone suddenly is asking like why is all this social unrest happening in Syria and Egypt and Spain and Greece and London well hey you can say go check out this radio show I listen to go check out this podcast episode 20 with Manfred Max Neef he tells you why there's social unrest breaking out it's a greater trend than just a lot of small the the media likes to take small individual occurrences and report on them as small individual occurrences and what the podcast is all about is tying all of those small individual occurrences together into the greater story We hope you all have enjoyed this greater story. Happy number 21. The end. time on the extra environmentalist realizing that ecology itself the nature itself doesn't have any stability that it is this radical flux 
we can't turn to any natural order to guide us. We can turn to a natural order to guide us when we are farming or when we are trying to figure out what's going on with our forests. But when it comes to how to form a society, when it comes to what, what kind of future world order do we want to see, how do we want to strive for, that's something we're going to have to work out on our own without any support really from even the natural world. If the postal service defaults in a few weeks, I don't. I won't even be able to mail you anymore. <laughs> don't worry. There'll always be for-profit people who will take your packages to me. I think uh, business opportunity is Pony Express, and I'm just going to learn. Horses. Yeah, I'm going to learn how to breed mules and ride those mules. Can you ride a mule, or are mules just for plows? Oh, you probably could train a mule to be ridden. Okay, let's do that. Let's instead of the Pony Express, I say Camel Express. We ride camels. If I could turn back even though uh, you know all of these things are on the horizon, and I'm just, just surrounded by so many people who don't even know that it's going down. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and. They're just worried about the 401k and what happened in the stock market today. And, and what think- McDonald's is going to be serving next. I mean, is the McRib coming back? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, what I really care about is the social media and, you know, what's happened to the latest movie star who flunked out of rehab. And, you know, that, that's all that really matters. In yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, who cares about the world or, you know, people or anything? If Brad and Angelina are doing well, then that's all I really care about. That's right. My fellow Americans, our country is mired in an economic crisis due to an enormous national debt. Turns out it's hard to figure out how to pay it back. A big old topic. That's why I'm asking you as American citizens to do your part by donating to my new Kickstarter project, The Debt. I know normally Kickstarter is for bad web series ideas and ugly art projects like a horse made out of wires or something. But we've got a more important project, America. America. With a project goal of $14 trillion, we're asking that you donate what you can so we can fix this thing before we land ourselves in Mad Maxville. We've even got some fine incentives for those donating. Pledge $1 and you get citizen's pride in return. Sorry, but we're broke. We can't afford to just give you things for a dollar. Pledge $50 and you get a nifty flag pin. I don't need it. Pledge $5,000 and I'll let you sit in my big comfy chair in the Oval Office. Just don't touch it. $20,000 gets you a position in your state house of representatives. Pledge $50,000 and you get to make a law. Come on, give me a law. Don't like birds? Make a law against birds. I don't know how we'll enforce that, but it's a law. $100,000 lets you be president for a day. You can just come chill in my kick-ass house, call some prime ministers, the whole shebang. One million dollars gets you executive producer credit on America. I'm not sure what that means, but it will look good on your IMDb. Ten million dollars and I'll tell you who killed JFK. That's right. I know. Eleven million dollars and I'll tell you who killed JFK, Tupac, and Biggie. Same person. Fifty million and I'll tell you what celebrities are actually extraterrestrial reptilians. That men in black shit is real. One billion dollars gets you Joe Biden. We've only got one of those, but let me tell you, he makes a killer calzone. 14 trillion and you get the whole country. It won't be the United States of America though, it'll be the United States of your name here. Your name's Ron, 
It's the United States of Iran. During World War II, citizens grew gardens, ration supplies, and bought bonds to aid their country. All you need to do is slip away from Farmville for a sec and click the pledge button. Let's kickstart that debt out of here. And while you're on Kickstarter, head over to my other page, where I'm trying to fund a zombie movie. It's a twist on the genre. Very funny, but also scary.